My name is Carrie Kenny, and I am guest hosting for the lovely Leslie, who is going to be away from the microphone for a little bit. And I'm going to do a few episodes. Hopefully, I can I can do them justice for her. If you don't know who I am, I'm an actress. I do comedy. Uh, you may remember me from a little television program called Reno 911, where I played a fake police officer. Um, I don't know. I'm on all kinds of TV shows and movies and crap like that. But most importantly, I like to bake and I like to sew and I like to weave and I like to make crap that no one ever sees, but that I appreciate doing. So I'm going to talk to some other makers, doers, movers, shakers. Can you hear me loud and clear? Oh, I hear you crystal clear. Can you hear oh, me? Oh, I sure can. It's Karen Kennedy from the olden days. Oh, Karen. <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> What's going on? Oh, my gosh. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. This is so much fun. So this podcast, many people have, have tuned in, hopefully four or five people have tuned in to hear about hobbies like knitting baking, wacky things like tarot card reading. Uh, if you're listening right now, uh, today is not that. Today is about my friend, Kevin Allison, who known for 31 years now. We started at NYU together. We were in a comedy group called The State. We had our first TV show together. We've been friends ever since. And Kevin is a performer, but also is best known probably for his podcast, very, very successful podcast, which has more than four people listening to it, called Risk. So Kevin, I welcome you today. Ah, Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. You know, when I think of hobbies, I think of things like fly fishing, knitting, uh, calligraphy. And so I've reached out to people as I've been uh, guest hosting. And it occurred to me that your hobby, if the definition of hobby is something we do in our spare time that is not for money that we do for pleasure, then I think absolutely uh, it could fall uh, under that uh, heading. Yeah, well, it, it it's kink. It's kink and BDSM. And you know, like... It was a real turning point in my life, actually, when I realized, oh, I can view this as a sort of a hobby because, you know, there there's an episode of Risk called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. I remember it well. Yeah, it's one of our most downloaded uh, episodes. And I recorded that when I was about 41 years old. I had just gone to a kink festival for the first time ever, like four days of being at what was otherwise a children's camp for the first three months of the summer. And then the kids go home. Hopefully. Yeah, yes. Hopefully, hopefully the kids aren't hiding in the floorboards. But anyway, yeah, it was my first time attending a like a communal sort of thing because I have been a super, super, super sexual person my entire life. One of the things that has defined me, my entire psychology is that 
I knew I was gay from the beginning of consciousness. You know, like my first conscious thought that I remember is, huh, I love boys' butts. Right. And when I was five years old, I was hearing other guys say, oh, that's gay, faggot, that's lame, that's deformed, that's, you know, warped. So I grew up terrified. Uh, I read an article in the Highline magazine recently about how gay men, a lot of them who knew they were gay when they were young, have what's called long-term trauma. As opposed to like, you know, a lot of people on that come on risk, you know, some of the stories are funny, but a lot of them are about like experiences in life, like, you know, the car accident where you accidentally killed someone or... Right. Well, I think I came on and told a story about a bad commercial audition or something. <laughs> I'm certainly not experiencing yeah, a, a life of trauma from that. Well, but that's the same with me. What I, you know, what I did was when I was when I was 39 years old, I realized, you know what? I have been, I have been beside myself my entire life about feeling like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm. Because when I was a kid, I grew up in this super Catholic, super conservative. Yeah, yeah. Cincinnati, Ohio. And so I was a very, very good boy on the surface, but then was a total class clown as a way to control people. Like I knew people would end up eventually laughing at mm-hmm. me. So I wanted to control why they were going to laugh at me. I can I can relate to that. Certainly. It's a it's a form of power. Yeah. Like being the weird kid on purpose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just, I grew up terrified of being found out that there was this thing inside of me being gay. Right. And basically what happened, what, what inspired me to start risk was for 12 years after the state broke up, I was so screwed up. I I, I had stage fright. I had social anxiety. I was very antisocial with the rest of the state. I kind of like shot myself in the foot in many, many ways. Was drinking too much, was just beside myself. But I was trying to do sketch comedy alone on stage as one person, Mm. you know, like playing different characters and stuff. And Michael Ian Black came to see one of my one person shows when I was 39 years old. And it was a bunch of kooky, crazy characters. And he said, Kevin, why don't you just drop the act? Why don't you just like seriously, like drop the mask and start just getting up and telling your own true stories. And I said, oh, God, I feel like I've been hearing a voice in my head saying that forever. But I'm too gay. I'm too Midwestern. I'm too kinky. I'm too intellectual and spiritual. And so it's too weird to miss a a mix of things. And it would be too risky. Right. And he literally said to me at that moment, he was like, cling to that word risk, because that's when things are happening, when you feel like you're opening up to an audience, they'll open up to you. Wow. So Michael Ian Black has gotten really rich off the residuals. Oh, yeah. Like he is rolling in it from all that <laughs> big risk money. <laughs> so that's what I, I, I went back to New York that week and I said, OK, what's the riskiest story I could tell in front of an audience? A true story. Mm. And I decided the story of the first time I tried prostituting myself, which was literally the weekend before the state was picked up 
for series when we were 23. Let me give people some context here. So we would do the state was a sketch comedy group that we had in. We started in, in college as just a, a club. Really, we did shows around mm-hmm. around NYU, around uh, New York City. And then in 1992, right when we graduated NYU, we got a deal with William Morris and we got our own TV show on MTV. And we did we did mm-hmm. several seasons there. Um, but as we were starting out, we were sort of, you know, we didn't have any template for what this was. So we just were, were theater students. We were theater and film okay. students, um, had a little, you know, room we used to rehearse in. And we took it very, 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 very seriously. And yeah. because we were these sort of, you know, artist kids, we would sit around in a circle. It's a, I can't say it with a straight face. And we would do before every rehearsal or before we would read scripts to each other something called a check-in. And it was basically yeah. like group therapy. And yeah. I remember uh, very often, in fact, I remember a very specific one where I... Oh, God. I don't, for some reason, this is more embarrassing to me than if I were telling you that I had prostituted myself. I remember sitting and telling you guys with misty eyes about how, what a wonderful weekend I had had in Connecticut with my mom breaking leaves um, and how much I loved fall and the crisp air and pumpkins and and uh, that Thanksgiving was coming. And that was like my emotional shit. And then the next person to go was you. And I remember you saying, well... I don't know. I was on the floor of this porno theater and I jerked some guy off and then I slipped in his jizz and I don't know what the hell happened next because I was on too many (laughs) poppers. Well, here we are now. What are we going to... And I just remember all of us being like, all right, well, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I always had the insanest check-ins. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and it always um, really fascinated me. And your openness always ha- has always throughout our, our life um, really fascinated me. And just your uh, reckless abandon when it when it came to sexuality, you know, scared, scared me, scares me at times. But it also is very mm. fascinating to me as someone who I think is just kind of, you know, normal in quotes when it comes to all that. So, um, yeah, well, that, you know, that. What happened by the time I got to college was I was so tired. I was so exhausted and so freaked out by all the hiding in a, in a closet, you know, all the like, cause I went to an all boys high school and all of the listening to the ways that guys mm. talk and, and all the bullshit around, you know, bullshitting around and all the, you know, calling each other fags and stuff like that. I was so exhausted with it that by the time I got to college and New York city, I like, I really, I told my parents, I want to go to NYU for the film school, but the truth was I wanted to go to New York City for gay sex. Yeah. Well, you're not alone. I think a lot of people do that. And P.S., this is you weren't just coming to New York City to a university. You were going to the village in yeah. the 80s. Yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you were I describe it to people who weren't there at that time, like it was like an actual village people uh, music video in the best possible yeah. way. Um, yeah. So how freeing for you, I would imagine. And you and you were out from the second we met you. So to hear you that the backstory of, of all this, you know, pent up, what sounds like quite a nightmare of growing up in that in that way. Um, I'm really 
honored that you, you know, showed up and felt safe and said, this is who I am. I'm this guy. And we all went, great, let's get moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it was so rewarding that the group responded so well, you know, to when I came, I, I, you know, like I wasn't really an official member of the group until junior year. So I was getting to know people gradually, but I do remember we went to, I don't know if you were there. I think it was just uh, a four or so of us. We went to visit Michael Showalter at Brown University. Oh, yes, University. I was there. We took a, a passenger van. Uh, I remember rolling around in the back of a passenger van. What, did we, it was a weekend that we did mushrooms. Yes, I was there. Yes, 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 yes. yes. And on the way back, I told everyone that I was gay and everyone was responded, you know, beautifully. So... So, yeah, like it was I, I was very high in college on this whole coming out thing. But then, you know, I had this safe. I, I often think of the state as kind of like having been in a womb because, you know, we had one another to protect each other. We were all there to like catch each other if we fell. There was like when we would sit down with network executives, there were 11 of us. So it was them being intimidated by us rather than the other way around. You know, That's they right. were the gatekeepers, but they felt like they were dealing with this 11 headed monster. And, you know, we used to tell ourselves all the time, oh, we're going to be together forever. We're building the career of this unit, not our individual careers. And I don't know if everyone in the group believed that, but I did. I kind of banked on us being like Monty Python or the Rolling Stones, like this entity that we would that we would always kind of be working as a unit. So when the group broke up, I was terrified. Like when we were 26 around there, uh, 1996 around there when the group like officially broke up, I was like, Oh, I thought that I was protected, you know, that, that, that the ups and downs of the group would be the ups and downs of my life, not having to forge a solo career. So I was just very scared because I always feel like whenever I enter a situation, I have to first get people to like me and then reveal how weird I actually am. Mm. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a weird back and forth like that. So it was 12 years later after like trying to be, you know, like uh, agents would give me advice on, oh, play up the Midwestern part because you've got the red hair and, you know, uh, play down the gay part. And, and I was always in, in auditions trying to figure out who to be, right, you know. Right. That, that Hollywood would be okay wow. with. And it was when I was 39 and Mike Black said, hey, just start telling your own true stories. When I told that first prostitution story at the UCB Theater in Chelsea, I was so taken aback by the audience, uh, audience's reaction because I was terrified. I thought, oh, this is a huge risk. But they loved it. Kevin, I mean, just e- even hearing you say like that prostitution story, uh, I know the story and I know a lot of your stories. But, you know, to a to a sort of a regular gal like me and to a lot of people, I think it's like, yes, tell me more. Wait, hold on. This happened. This is something you can say just so casually. So I I totally understand how how the the sort of masses in that theater and that you know would would want more would would be okay with it yeah. and want more 
Yeah, and that's you know what it another thing is, and I dearly love my mom, and like my mom is the sweetest, and yes. uh, it, it, you know our whole family loves my mom. But here's the thing: like so many other moms of that generation, mm. uh, she was just like completely flummoxed by sex. You know, the, the word sex oh, freaked her you out. You don't discuss that. You know? No. And God forbid, deviant, <laughs> deviant sex. Oh, my God. I'll, I will tell you, every week that an episode of The State aired on yeah. MTV. And you were in a dress would get a, and a wig. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would get a phone call the next day of... Kevin, I talked to your Aunt Kate, and we both agree that people just don't appreciate some of these jokes about sex. I mean, you would think that we were like X-rated or something. Well, but you know? we, and also we did Jesus. Go... Whenever Jesus came oh. into things, they were completely Well, then you out. had Jesus and sex and Michael Ian Black in a, as the Pope in a see-through robe, and we sprayed him with, with grape juice, and you could see his penis. And, and then I was not up. helping masturbating on a couch in front of 10 guys um, dressed in as hormones. Um, That's so true. Now that I poor think mom, it. we put her through a lot. And then now, does she know, does she listen to Risk? Does she know well, about see, your that, sex sexcapades? That's the thing. After 12 years of the state had broken up and 12 years of banging my head against the wall, getting nowhere with my career, worrying about what are people going to think of me? Who should I be? At 39, I, I that's when that whole thing happened with sharing that prostitution story. And so that night was a eureka moment for me because I walked away from that theater and I said, I think I've got hmm. it. I can create a show where people come out of the closet about anything i can share my sexy stories but other people can share about you know like real trauma or, or whatever it is and so the whole idea occurred to me that night and i realized even as i was putting the idea together you know what this is this is a fuck you to the archetypal voice of my mom in my head. Mm. You know, not necessarily my mom herself, but that voice of her in my head of being like, stop it, don't be like right. that. Right, people you know, are going like, to see. Someone yes, might find yes, out yes, about yes. this. Yeah. So that's what it was. It was this feeling of, oh, my whole life I've been obsessed with keeping things secret or coming out of the closet, I could create a show that unlike these NPR storytelling shows that have to keep things family friendly, here's a show where people can really just say anything. Right. And there's a like power the about being on stage when you can't see the audience and the light is bright in your eyes and you're sharing and you're connecting, although you somehow still feel like you're alone uh, in a safe space, and then you're just hearing hearing the laughter and the support and the applause and encouragement. That's a powerful, powerful, powerful safe place to be. Yeah, like like when I first put the podcast out, I was like, oh god, what if people say the things that I worry people will say? About, you know, oh, who's this faggot? And um, oh, you know, his personality is too big and annoying. And People did start writing those things in, you know, like on iTunes, you know, the haters. People with too much time on their hands. It was a few years in where I had looked at a bunch of iTunes comments and they were really, really tearing me down. And I decided to just speak my heart as I felt in the opening monologue of the episode that week, just mm -hmm. right into the microphone. Tell people, you know, 
the reason I started this is because I can be really weird and I can be inappropriate and I can be very spiritual and emotional. There are all these sides to myself. There was an acting class I took one time with a really wonderful teacher named Elizabeth Browning. She would do this thing where if you were doing a scene and and she was like, God damn, I'm feeling like I'm not seeing his more dominant nature or her sweeter nature or whatever it is. She would say, okay, Kevin, stop. Okay, everyone take everything off the stage. Kevin, just start walking around in a circle. Just start walking the whole perimeter of the room in a circle. And you would get this centrifugal (laughs) force going and she would be like, okay, now can I have permission to talk to Kevin's warrior? You know, and then you would you would like start to invite this part of yourself and she would interview Kevin's warrior or whatever it is, Kevin's lover or whatever. And you would be very surprised at some of the stuff that came out of your mouth, how your posture changed, how your voice changed. And it's funny because. I now find that kind of stuff happening in BDSM okay. a lot. Kevin, you know? yeah. so I mean, okay, what is BDSM? Am I saying that right? BDSM? Yeah, it's uh, so the D and the S have two different meanings within it. So it's bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, sadism and masochism. So it's, it's six different things just all lumped together. So it's like Bed Bath & Beyond, Exactly. Okay. So much without the bath without mats. all the bath mats. Um, <laughs> I thought I thought in my feeble brain that it was that weird thing where people talk like this and they brush their hair. Oh no, that's ASM uh, ASMR. Okay. Oh my god, which I'm sure there's a kink for that too. You know, I'm sure there is. I'm actually relieved to hear that you're into to sex and bondage and not that weird like people eating bananas and brushing their hair into a microphone. <laughs> That to me is weirder. I'm sorry to anyone who's into that. Godspeed. It's just not my thing. There's a saying in the kink community, uh, rule 34, which means if if you can think of it, there's a kink of it. So I'm sure oh. there are uh, people who get off to ASMR. Um, but no, what what happened was I was super sexual throughout my entire life. The thing I liked most doing was going to sex clubs, was going to um, group sex sort of things where, you know, gay men have bathhouses or sex clubs or just like private orgies at people's houses. And I always really liked that scene. I I, I liked entering a space that is dark, taking off all my clothes and then just becoming a part of this like animalistic, um, you know, like, like you're in all of a sudden in a pride of lions and you know, there's everything. No one's, no one's really talking. It's just grunting and eye contact. And I don't know. I, I always loved that. Did that, do you think that's because you spent your whole childhood sort of being isolated sexually in a sense. I mean, we all do as a kid, you're, you're you're exploring on your own or you're, but, but this idea when you say like gay men like these, you know, as sort of a general statement, do you think it has something to do with, with growing up sort of, you know, secretly feeling alone, feeling separated, feeling different than these boys you hear talking about these girls in these other ways. And then all of a sudden there's like, you want to jump into some sort of for lack of a better word, fellowship or a, a yeah. group in a sense, like I, you just want it all. You just want to be enveloped by this, by a group setting. Yes, 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 yes. And that is why 
when I first went to that kink camp when I was 41, it was such a revelation to me because all of a sudden for the first time ever, I was in an environment where men and women and trans people, people who were gay and bi and straight and whatever else, were all coming together and were all taking their clothes off when, when they entered into this realm. And I'll never forget, I describe this in the story, Kevin Goes to King Camp. The first night in the dining hall, you know, dinner is at like, I don't know, 7 p.m. or something I like mean, that. just the fact that there's a dining hall. I, I, <laughs> okay, go on, go on. I don't want to make fun. I don't mean to make fun. But you have to admit that when you mix like bondage and sex and fluids and things, and then you're talking about it like a cafeteria setting with like mac and cheese, there is an aspect Absolutely. to it that's like, how is this going to work? Well, no, you do have to have something covering like your genital, your genitalia when you're in the cafeteria. Like a hairnet. Like people have hairnets yeah. around their around their junk. <laughs> right, right, junk right. nets. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, but as we were all entering, because it's a you know it, there were 300 people there that first time I went, and now I I you know there I tried to go back to that camp recently, and there were like 1,300. So this stuff is becoming more and more popular. Yeah. But anyway, that first night walking into that cafeteria, there was just this this extended whooping and hollering. Mm. People were so excited to be away from society, to be here where all this stuff is celebrated and explored and people have an open mind. And I was like, oh, that's the moment it clicked for me of, oh, it doesn't have to be totally underground and in the dark and people not speaking to each other. There's a real community mm. here because, you know, at, at these kink camps, they teach workshops. There are there are activities for exploring new things with professionals who know how to do these things that you can sign up for. There was just just a smorgasbord of things to try and games to play and activities to be a part of that was really eye-opening for me. And I left that camp and I realized, ah, okay, because I'm not much of a joiner. You might have noticed in the state, in the state I was the same guy that I was in my family. The ADHD kid who's in his own universe, who like is more likely to be off reading books or listening to records than playing with the other kids, et cetera. I did that in the state too. Like I was a little bit like had one foot out the door doing other stuff while the state was a little bit more unified. I well, I think felt. we all did. I think, you know, I, I think we all had our own, you know, separate, I was doing the band and, and, right. uh, you know, people had their own sort of side projects, so to speak. But we were also, you know, a bunch of weirdos coming together, finding ourselves, you know, the way you describe that feeling of coming into that space and feeling like, oh, this isn't a uh, a negative that I feel this way as a person that I'm into, the, you know, A, B and C. Look at all these other people who are into it. This is actually a positive. That's how I felt when when I met the, all you guys in the state was like, I felt yeah. like a weird kid growing up and look at all these weirdos and they accept me. And, in, you know, in a in a in a very um, innocent sort of way, uh, I watched it happen with my son 
kind of trying to find his way in our small town and then bringing him to the Minecraft convention and watching his eyes light up as he saw all these other kids. And he said, Mommy, all these kids look like me. And it was this, this, Aww, this, I mean, my heart just amazing. exploded. And I imagine for, for little Kevin, you know, feeling like this, this, this weirdo growing up and then you find these people and it's not to me. I think what happens is if there are other people who are into it, all of a sudden it's not weird anymore in this room with these people, this is not weird anymore. And, and I can, t- and right. I can talk about, about my, my desires and, and it makes it okay. Well, that's another thing that is so profound about like what, what, what I was learning at that camp that weekend and what we do with risk is that there are so many things that people are not used to talking about. And, and so for example, at the camp, there are all kinds of workshops about consent negotiation, seduction, uh, safety, you know, all these issues that are really very important to like to to get familiar with, Uh, especially for some of this play. I mean, you know, uh, if someone's whipping you for two hours and you've got a heart condition, you know, like, 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 yeah, there's, there's, there's dangerous things that can happen. So you gotta, and you know, it's interesting, like, the extent to which consent and negotiation especially are not talked about in uh, ordinary circumstances. I think that the kink and polyamorous and, and gay male sexual culture has a lot to teach the rest of the world because the truth is mm. a lot of the conversations that polyamorous people are making sure to be having with each other all the time or a lot of the consent and negotiation conversations that kinksters are having with each other all the time, those kind of conversations would also work for monogamous vanilla people too. A million you know percent. What I mean? A million percent because <laughs> how often are we sexually checking in with each other in a you know typical missionary male female situation? It's like, well, I got what I needed. I got what I needed. Let's keep it moving. People probably could learn yeah. a lot. And do you still oh, go uh, to like kink camp or sex clubs or? Yeah. Well, it's been a while since I've been to a camp. One of the things that fascinates I told a story on Risk um, a couple of years ago called The Whiz Kid about a time I went to an all-male kink mm. camp a few years ago. And it's called The Whiz Kid because uh, – I can I guess. Like- I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> now, who was The Whiz Kid? Was it you? Or were you were – It you- was me. It was okay. me. I, yeah, okay. I was uh, – handcuffed and had to, you know, serve as like nine different guys urinal. So, so you know. oh, I see you were the receiver of the urine. I thought you had to like drink a ton of Gatorade. You know, that would be harder for me because I have peacefulness. <laughs> <laughs> And also not the biggest fan of Gatorade. I mean, come on. So that story, The Whiz Kid, on the surface, it's like, oh, my gosh, there's this huge pee scene in it that's, you know, very uh, graphic and all that kind of thing. But what the story is really about, what really gets you invested in it, is it's about social anxiety and about how we're just it's so hard to master the stuff that we're hardwired to feel since we were kids because here i was once again at a kink camp and once again feeling like oh everyone's a freak here 
but I'm the freak among the freaks. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like, like just somehow my brain needing to go down that path of, Oh, but, but everyone will probably still not like me or, you know, uh, I'll have the wrong ball gag. Everyone's doing brown ball gags this year. And I brought a red one. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, there is this thing of like, I've noticed that my stories will often have very similar themes in them because we always have to relearn the same things based on our old complexes that we got when we were kids, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Do, what do you pack to go to a kink camp? What is your pack? So like, we're, you know, we'll go like on a weekend camping trip and it'll be, you know, bug spray. You do pack all those okay. things. Uh, I have, I have lots of toys. You know, I was invited back after I did the story, Kevin goes to kink camp, that camp, like that brought a lot of attention to that. Yeah. How'd they feel about that? So they asked me back, they said, would you like to teach a class here next year? And I said, oh, absolutely. I said, how about I'll teach a class called everything you can do to an ass other than fuck it. I (laughs) took that class at the learning annex. I don't know if you have to cut words out of your podcast. I don't think so. <laughs> oh, okay. No, because right after yeah. we do this, they're just going to cancel the whole podcast. So you don't have to cut <laughs> anything out. I wanted to teach that class because I love butts, but I'm not really into fucking. So a lot of people are like, huh, how does that work? So I wanted to teach a class about just all the things you can do to butts. And I did. And it was a huge hit. So that's when I kind of, you know, it really clicked in for me. Yeah, this is a hobby. You know, I do. And, you know, nowadays, like I'll throw socials, you know, I'll throw like, I'll invite gay kinky men to come out to such and such a bar to just like, you know, I I feel like online has been a very, very good thing. The Internet has been a very, very good thing for kinksters in terms of like learning about each other, finding each other. Oh, my God, I'm sure. I mean, when you sort of started in this world, when, you know, back when when we were young and living in the city, there there wasn't the internet so it was all about flyers and word of mouth and just finding yourself in weird alleys probably from what i've heard in your stories you know like oh and quite frankly like you you were talking about yeah i arrived in the 80s so yeah it was the maplethorpe era i could i could have been at places like the mine shaft back then but I was just so used to feeling like, oh, I don't fit in and there's a whole culture around this leather and BDSM stuff. So I was a little bit daunted by that when I was a a college student and would have preferred just to go to like sex clubs and all that kind of stuff. But what happened was once the Internet exploded, all of these codes and practices and customs that gay men had been like really deeply engaged in in the 50s and 60s and 70s started to inform uh, what uh, people started teaching each other online for like a wider community. And so that's how these camps kind of came to. Th- uh, there was a site that developed called FetLife, which is kind of like Facebook for kinksters. Mm. And you know, that's where people come to commune and, and give information back and forth. And I realized that's where a we found years- our housekeeper. She does amazing things with a feather duster. <laughs> I do actually know people <laughs> who, 
who pay dominance for the privilege of cleaning I'm their sh- apartment. I'm sure. I'm sure there's I something s- for everybody. I so wanted to make that work for myself. I even tried it a couple of times, but I don't have that level of, I have what they call dominant anxiety, which is that I'm good at playing like the master for a half hour or something in like a very sexualized situation. But pretty soon I'm going to start laughing. And well, be that's like, what I was okay, going to say, Kevin, I can't imagine you in any of these scenarios, not eventually just breaking out into laughter (laughs) that's i insist i warn people i'm like i'm a laughter i'm a laugher like the extent to which we're going to be in character has to be a little bit fluid and i'm sure i'm sure there there's a niche for that as well and ticklers (laughs) tickling (laughs) i think it's like people often comment that i burst out laughing after I have an orgasm like it just it always happens mm. and 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 sometimes people are offended they're like what the hell is so funny and I'm just like I everything is so funny it's just so ridiculous what I've got we a do. feather duster up my ass that's funny <laughs> you got to admit <laughs> So, yeah, so no, I realized a couple of years ago, I was like, this online stuff is great, but let's get back to people getting together in bars. So I started, you know, doing socials where I make sure to invite guys out to be, oh, we're all fellow kinksters, you know, you should know this person and, uh, oh, this person can teach you about yada yada. So I really have always like liked the idea of being like someone who helps people come together socially you right. know well because as you said as this all started this this is not just about getting off this is a this is a lifestyle for you a, a it's a therapeutic coming together with with like-minded people and feeling part of something and i mean i think that's what we all want at the end of the day to to feel heard and to feel part of something Absolutely. And, you know, another amazing thing about kink, and I think that it comes across in that story, Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. And then there's another story called Beyond Kink Camp, where I have my first, like, kinky relationship with someone. Um, It's a constant process of discovery. I just love how open you are about all of it. I mean, I think you're you're probably desensitized to it now because of doing risk and telling the stories for so long. But I, I think it's just wonderful that you talk about it like you talk about going to a pottery class. And I there's something so refreshing about that, because even still in our society that's opened up in a lot of ways, that's still something you don't really talk about. I mean, it, you may talk about it, but, you know, you hide it from certain parts of your life. And I think I would be remiss if I did not bring up because like, if I were a glass blower, there's inherent risks in that, you know, physical Mm. risks, you know, there's, there's inherent risks in, in, in skydiving, if that's my hobby, there's inherent risk with with this pastime. And how has that changed over time for you? Here's the fascinating thing. So one of the reasons that I wanted to teach that class called everything you can do to an ass other than fuck it mm-hmm. is that as sexual as I was during all that time in college and after college, uh, you know, it was the late 80s, early 90s. I was not doing anal sex mm. like I was just afraid of. Go- I mean, obviously, I understood you use a condom and there were several occasions when I did. But in general, 
I just wanted to try anything but that to be on the safe side. I was terrified. Yeah. Well, of, right, of, rightfully of that. so. At yeah. that time, you know, people were dying left and right, and there there yeah. was no cure. We didn't understand it completely. Yeah, exactly. Like I mentioned, Robert Mablethorpe, yeah. Keith we Haring recently zero. died when we came in. Yeah, like like so many people we looked up to and beautiful, wonderful artists uh, were in the process of dying or had recently died. So yeah, ACT UP was happening then in Queer Nation, and I was a part of all of that, but. I was just, I just, I don't know. Some part of me was like, okay, I'll do a lot of sexual activities other than the riskiest one, even, you know. And so I kind of hardwired myself to kind of maybe not be into anal sex. And nowadays they've got PrEP and PEP, these, you know, Truvada, these, these, uh, pills which are incredibly effective mm. at reducing the risk of HIV um, transmission. And so uh, everyone I know is on them now. Oh, All okay. the gay men I know are on them now. And everyone's always saying, including my therapist, well, you ought to just get on them uh, even though you're not in the habit of having anal sex. Or if you ever do, you usually use a condom anyway. So, so I am considering getting on PEP and PrEP. However... I tell everyone in any kink workshop I teach or just whatever that all sex, all sexual contact uh, has certain amounts of risk. You know what I mean? Uh, psychological, you know, a lot of BDSM is psychologically right, risky. Right, right, you know? I would imagine. Humiliation is a big thing. And there are certain kinds of humiliation that I'm okay with. But if someone says, you're stupid, you're worthless, you're dumb or something like that. I'm like, get, no, get the fuck out of here. But End you're okay scene, with you like, know? you didn't file your taxes right. <laughs> no, oh my God, that, no. where'd you get that poster? <laughs> Ikea? I'm, no, the hard limit on talking about my taxes too. <laughs> oh my God. So not much goes with you. You're not a lot of fun, Kevin. <laughs> you're very uptight. But for example, in that class that I teach about uh, everything you can do to an ass, like, you know, something like rimming, which is my very favorite thing, there are a host of parasites, bacteria, germs that you can get from doing that. And you have to have all your hepatitis shots. You're really selling me on this. <laughs> I was just I was online just booking my my weekend at kink camp and now I'm having second thoughts. <laughs> I'm going to go to that pottery convention after all. Well, I will say you can take risks. Of course you can. And I do all the time. But you have to at least be informed and you have to be tested on a regular basis and checking up on yourself. There are things like gonorrhea and syphilis and and uh, all these other, uh, you know, more what we think of as more minor STDs that are on the rise since people are using less and less condoms in the in the gay male community, at least because of Truvada. You always have to be keeping up with where things are medically at that time. Well, I'm just I'm blown away by you. I your your honesty and your and honestly, Kevin, I don't think I've seen you as as confident and as happy and as open as I have in the last couple years in your Aww. life. And it still makes me giggle some of the stories. 
but you probably think I'm weird for spending hours and hours and hours looking at ceramic glaze websites. Um, <laughs> probably just as strange and a little uh-huh. bit cringy and eye rolly. Um, I'm going to ask you just a rapid fire few places because I want to know if you've ever had sexual relations in these places. Oh, great. Um, uh-huh. A public bathroom. We'll start with an oh, easy one. Just a couple of weeks ago. You're doing it right now. Um, moving vehicle. Yes. Uh, wait, moving? Yeah, oh, yeah, moving. Uh, well, I've given a hand job in a moving vehicle. Classic. Doctor's office. Uh, I don't think so. Okay, well, put it on your list. Church, <laughs> synagogue, or mosque? Oh, definitely a church. Uh, oh, but was it was the limelight, oh. which was a transformed Oh, we all church. had sex at the limelight. That's, a, that's yeah. nothing. <laughs> that's junior league. Uh, grocery store loading dock. <laughs> nope, I've yet to do it there. Just sounded fun to say. Uh, paddle boat, ski do, or catamaran? Oh, well, now I don't belong on any of those things, period. Okay. You know, I... I have no balance. Speaking of safety, he is being safe. Yeah. He doesn't go on watercraft <laughs> while having kinky sex with strangers. <sighs> Kevin, anything else you want to throw in? I just I just love you. Well, people should definitely check out the Risk podcast because it's not just kinky story. There are lots of those from people of all walks of life, including asexual people or, you know, that kind of thing. But there's also lots of hilarious stories and very, like, you know, moving stories. So, yeah, there's there's a treasure trove of amazing stuff that you can't believe people are talking about, you know. Yeah, and there's some hilar- hilarious, hilarious stories by every oh, yeah. comedian that you know and love. And, well, I thank you for this one, Kevin. And I think it's, oh, it's um, so much. really just amazing of you to share it all. And, and I think we've all learned a lot here today. And I'm going to go find a butthole to stick my finger in i'm gonna look at some ceramic glazes i love you kevin (laughs) (laughs) i'll talk to you soon sweetheart leslie will be back from hiatus in a few weeks in the meantime we have more episodes from the wonderful carrie kenny to come Does listening to Filling the Void fill your void? Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Erios. Powered by ACAST.